This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is supported by Trustonomy, an original podcast from One Trust. Every good relationship you have, personal or business, it involves trust. But we all know that trust doesn't just happen, right? We've all lost trust in a friend or a brand or a product. Trustonomy is a new podcast that looks at true stories from the past to understand how trust works and what makes it stronger and how to rebuild it when it's broken. Now, you know, I'm a sucker for a good podcast that weaves historical stories and relates it to what's happening today. So I thoroughly enjoyed this Trustonomy episode and recommend that you check that out as well. Search for Trustonomy in your podcast player. We'll also include a link in the show notes. Many thanks to the One Trust team for their support. As artificial intelligence continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation that we can't ignore AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. With over 750 specialized hackers in their community, HackerOne isn't just theorizing. They're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large organization, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI dash safety dash security again HackerOne.com slash AI-safety-security. What's going on, Michael? How are things? Uh, things have been, I'd, honestly, really busy. It's kind of lame when, when people say that, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that's how it's but felt. sometimes maybe. it's true, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, I can definitely relate. I mean, there's there's tons of things going on here, too, with industry been working on this ebook we're rolling out soon for product collective and got some personal travel coming up so yeah i can relate yeah so i guess we're both busy guys right now well what if i were to tell you that i had a way to invent time and help you give hours back in your day so you can accomplish all the things that are coming up on your end you're saying you can make time that is exactly what i'm saying well I should clarify, not me. I can't personally make time, but John Zaratsky can. Now, John was one of the co-authors of Sprint, um, which you might remember, he helped co-architect the whole design sprint framework at GV. Uh, but yeah. 
more recently, he wrote this book um, with Jake Knapp, same guy he wrote the book Sprint with. Um, the book is called Make Time, and it's all about helping people become more productive. Ah, okay. I, I take it you got to chat with John recently for the benefit of rocket ship listeners? I sure did. And from the sounds of it, it should benefit the both of us too. <laughs> Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. So you say John Zaraski can make time. Okay. It might not be like humanly possible to actually make time, but with everything that John has learned about being productive, all the stuff about creating the whole design sprint process, working closely with the GV portfolio companies, he's seen what's worked best to help people actually get more time in their day back and ultimately be more productive, helping them focus on whatever it is that they want to focus on, whether it's work, family, maybe some self-care time. I wrote this book with Jake Knapp, who I, I wrote Sprint with, and, and Jake and I worked together um, at Google Ventures for about six years, where we developed the design sprint process together and ran more than 150 sprints with all sorts of different companies. And one of the reasons that we wanted to write this book is that we struggled with this stuff. I mean, we still struggle with this stuff. You know, we are not... Um, we have no superhuman powers of willpower or discipline or an ability to resist all the distractions and all the things that keep us from doing what we really want to do. I think, uh, you know, those of, of you who work in technology, particularly working in large tech companies, you know that in many ways, that's kind of the epicenter of this fast pace, you know, back-to-back -back meeting, you know, always connected, always online type workplace culture. And, and it's not unique to tech, but I think in many ways, because of the way that we embrace new technologies and new apps and new tools, it's it's worse in tech companies. So we we felt those things working at Google and working at, at YouTube. And we saw those problems when we would go in and, and work with companies in Google Ventures portfolio. And so, yeah, the, the book is is largely like a memoir of our experience uh, getting through those challenges and finding ways to make little tweaks, little changes in how we plan our days so that we actually have time for the things that are important to us. Rocket Ship listeners probably remember that we did an entire mini-series on the design sprint process. That series focused on AJ and Smart and their work with the team at Zero. But John Zaratsky and Jake Knapp really originated the concept, and they wrote the book Sprint to highlight it. But they go from a book that helps people prototype ideas to a book about productivity, which, yes, it's something that benefits product people, but it's not specifically about product people. Did John talk about why the transition, you know, it, why did it feel natural to him? Yeah, he did. And you know, for me, I will say, I was kind of surprised when I heard about Make Time originally. So I, I just I would have thought their next book would have been about, I don't know, like Design Sprints 2.0 or yeah. you know, some sort of other helpful process for tech companies to build and launch products. But when John explains it, it actually makes a lot more sense. Sprint is obviously about the five-day design sprint process. Uh, but I think one of the reasons that people have have enjoyed it so much. And, you know, maybe one of the reasons that, that you enjoyed it is that it, it gives people a formula or a recipe for wiping away the defaults of how work usually happens. So when you're in the office, you've got, you know, things happen a certain way. All the meetings are 30 or 60 minutes long. 
Uh, you've got meetings kind of back to back. You've got email coming in. You're expected to stay on top of that email, instant messaging, whatever is going on. Um, and with the design sprint, teams can can wipe all that away and they can put in place a new set of defaults for a week where they can work together on a project that's really important to them, a problem they've been trying to solve. And the new book, Make Time, is really an extension of that idea. So it's all about that idea of rethinking and resetting the defaults about how we spend our time and how we think about our days, but for individuals and for every day, not just these special once in a while things that we do um, like a design sprint. I, I think that that we find that when our, our days, our, our time is are sliced up and when we're being pulled in a lot of different directions, uh, it, it makes us feel like time is going by really quickly, um, which isn't a great feeling. Nobody likes to feel like time is flying by. We want to feel like we can hold on to it, like there's things that are happening and things that we're doing that really feel good. But at the same time, when our days are sliced up like that, we don't have the bandwidth to actually do the work that we're trying to do. So I remember having this feeling of like sometimes you know, when I was working in a, you know, in, in, in office job and in tech companies, I had this feeling of getting to the end of the day and being done with my meetings and thinking, okay, now I can get my work done. You know, now at the end of the workday, I actually have the space and the time to focus on my work. And so one of the things that we hope people can do with, with make time and with the ideas in this book are to uh, just start to, to rearrange their schedules a little bit. Um, to take back time from sort of that default mode of scheduling days, from those default ways that we interact with our phones and you know our, our, our web browsers and, and social media, um, so that we have more space in our days, so that we have time for the things that matter, but also so that our perception of time slows down. So this book, it's not just something that talks about these theoretical concepts. It's prescriptive. It shares a process that people can actually go through in order to be more productive. Yeah, that's actually true. And it's broken up into four specific steps. And John highlights them right here. The first step is uh, proactively choosing a highlight. No matter what else happens, you can get to the end of the day feeling like you made time for that one important thing. The second step is laser. It's all about beating distraction so that you can be laser focused on your highlight and, and really on everything else about reconfiguring technology, reconfiguring your environment so that it's more difficult to get distracted. It's not about willpower or discipline. It's really about creating barriers to distraction. The third step is energize. It's all about recharging our brains using our bodies. So taking care of our bodies, it's difficult to make good use of our time. It's difficult to really just have a good day and feel like we're enjoying ourselves when we're tired, when we're worn down, when we're you know, feeling stressed out and frazzled. And then finally, the fourth step is to spend a couple of minutes every day thinking about what worked in terms of our time and our attention and our energy and what changes you might want to make for tomorrow. I can see some of the similarities to this mindset and really being a product person. The idea of testing things, seeing how they work, experimenting and iterating the next day. These are things that probably would come naturally to any product person. Yeah, for sure. But even still, following these steps, doing these things, it's probably not so easy, at least not at first. No, it absolutely takes time to practice and master this. 
in the beginning, you know, there's probably going to be some missteps for people. Um, and John actually talks about some of these missteps and maybe other common ways that people sort of get off on the wrong foot. And one thing that came up specifically is about technology and how to think about it. One thing that that trips people up when they're trying to, you know, reduce distraction or take control of their time or, or you know, make time for, for things that are important is um, the the myth that smartphones are distracting because of notifications. I think that notifications can be pretty annoying, but I think that it's uh, I don't I think it's an sort of overstatement that notifications are are the cause of distraction. Um, and the reason I, I believe that is, you know, you think about uh, driving or you think about walking down the street and, and, I, and, you know, not while using your phone, but, but you think about doing something like that in an environment where you're being bombarded by noises and visual uh, distractions. And we as humans, we have the ability to tune those things out, to continue focusing on what we're doing. When you're driving down the street, you've got cars all around you, you've got billboards, you've got something on the radio, whatever you're doing. But we have the ability to to block those things out and to focus on driving the car. And I think notifications are kind of like that. I think that that we we have the ability to um, to sort of ignore the the sounds and the buzzing and, and the the active attempts from our phone to steal our attention. What I think is is much more dangerous and and uh, kind of insidious because it's not where we initially start when we're trying to solve these problems for ourselves is the sources of those notifications and those distractions. It's not the notification from Twitter telling you that there's some new tweets you want to look at. It's Twitter itself. And don't get me wrong, I use Twitter and, you know, I, I love Twitter and I, I use, you know, all of the, you know, the sort of we call them infinity pool apps, all these distracting uh, apps that have endless amounts of content. I use them. So I'm not, I'm not saying that we shouldn't use them, but I'm saying that uh, if we want to focus on dimming our attention, if we want to be less distracted, I think we need to get to the, the root of the issue, which is doing something like removing Twitter or Instagram from our phones, not spending time working around the edges, you know, tweaking the notifications and, you know, rearranging the home screen so it looks really calming. And, you know, there's a lot of things that you can do that feel like you're getting at the problem, but I, I think you're really not. So, so uh, you know, I think that's, um, that is one place where, where I see people kind of, uh, in my opinion, um, you know, get focused on, on the wrong the wrong avenues, go down the wrong road in terms of trying to solve these problems. Whoa, removing Instagram from my phone. He's not saying that you have to. <laughs> I mean, I even know that John uses Instagram and I actually follow him. He's a pretty good follow. <laughs> but removing it altogether, it might actually solve the problem rather than just creating some sort of folder that you think is helping you avoid it. But really, you're just jumping through extra hoops to ultimately get there. Right, right. Well, I'm curious about his take on technology. We, we've talked a lot about this recently on the show. And I know that you and I stay connected through Slack. Some of these platforms like Slack and others promise, you know, helping people stay more productive. But then there's a lot of studies that say, do they really? Every new platform, every new tool that a team adopts is like taking on debt. And that debt requires a payment. Uh, in the case of, of, you know, the tools that we're talking about, it requires a payment every, every day or every hour, you know? Um, and, and I like that analogy because debt is not 
good or bad. You know, there are, there are, you know, as individuals or as businesses, we have good reasons for using financial debt, you know, it allows us to, to make investments and buy things and pay for things that we wouldn't otherwise. Um, but debt can also be really dangerous. If you take on too much of it without getting the benefits of it, then you're stuck making the payments. Um, and so, you know, I think uh, when teams pile on too many of these new tools and new platforms um, that are meant to make us more productive, sometimes it can have the, the opposite approach. My take on it is that we should use as few different platforms as possible. Um, if that means, you know, only using Slack for internal communication and using email purely for external, um, maybe that's um, a, a good approach. If it means using, um, you know, something that you're already using, like Google spreadsheets to, to manage projects instead of taking on a new, you know, really fancy, complicated project management app, you know, maybe that helps. Um, I think that we're sold on the, the best case scenario, but, um, but very much like taking on debt. Um, the reality is a little bit more complicated, more mixed. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. It's definitely interesting to think about every new platform we sign up for as taking on debt. And yes, sometimes debt has that negative connotation, but is it really bad unless you're taking on too much? So it's something to consider before you decide to take on yet another new platform. Yes, for sure. Although sometimes that decision of taking on another platform, it's not really your decision to make, is it? <laughs> That's true. That's true. Especially at larger companies, these platforms are sometimes just handed down and you might not have much of a choice. Yes. And if you are at one of these companies and you're the one making decisions about new platforms for people to use to help everybody be more productive, <laughs> well, John has a message for you. I also think it's interesting um, when you when you think about the role of, of leadership or, or management in, in an organization um, because the decisions that th those people make have sort of an asymmetric effect on the way that everybody else uses their time. So a relatively simple, small decision by an executive mm. sort of ripples out into creating huge effects on all the people that they work with. Right. And so, you know, particularly as we're talking about adding new, new tools for communicating or for collaborating, if an executive says, you know, hey, I heard about this new thing, we should try it. Um, that's a relatively small decision for them, but that's a big deal for the people that they work with. So I think um, if we can look at these decisions through that lens, not just of us as individuals, but as how our choices affect everybody that we work with, um, it, it just forces us to slow down and be a little bit more thoughtful. Okay, so what about ideas on how to get started? Did John talk about how people should, you know, organize their day, for instance? Yes, although it's not really a one-size-fits-all type answer. It is a personal thing for sure. Uh, different people have different times of day when they feel like they have the most energy, when they feel like they can uh, really concentrate on something that's important. Uh, for me, and for really a lot of people, um, the morning is when we have the most energy. Um, it might not be one, right when we wake up, but just kind of statistically, uh, you, you know, if you're looking at people in general, the morning people tend to have more energy than in the afternoon or in the evening. So I think it's um, if there are activities that require energy, whether it's making something or whether it's engaged, uh, engaging in a some sort of learning activity that really challenges us, that really requires 
that we pay attention so that we can learn and grow, we should try to align those things when the, with the part of the day when we have the most energy. On the other hand, the things that don't require a ton of energy, like answering emails and, and going to meetings uh, and taking care of errands and stuff like that, we can push those to the end of the day. We can push those to times when we feel like we don't have energy, when you know we're a little tired out, we're a little worn worn down, and and maybe uh, maybe if we weren't doing something, we would uh, kind of sit there and zone out and stare at our phone for half an hour. But if you can instead answer a few emails, you can you can run an errand, you can you know clean something up, you can just kind of take care of something that needs to happen anyway. Um, that can be a really nice time to. Um, both keep yourself from reinforcing that, you know, uh, sort of addictive distraction loop, but also feel like you've made time for the things that are that are most important. Any other specific ideas that John offered up? Well, there was something that came up in the conversation. You know, when you take a look at your calendar, you're likely to see all these blocks of time that other people have basically hijacked from you. You know, maybe they've sent you meeting requests, you get invited to join this and that. Um, and that could be from your team members, your boss, clients. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I know it comes with the territory, but sometimes it can be draining. Yes. Well, what if you block the time yourself first so that they couldn't? Go on. This idea of blocking time on your calendar, um, we actually read about it in the book. It's something that, that I learned from a manager of mine when I was at Google. I was a UX designer. I was working on on advertising products. And my manager, um, he had this this crazy calendar. He was back-to-back. He was running around. You know, typical sort of corporate manager type stuff where he's just always in meetings. But uh, but I noticed on his calendar, because Google and, and probably many other companies, you can see other people's calendars. I noticed that he had scheduled time with himself every morning. Uh, and, and so I asked him about it. And he's like, well, that's my time. That's when I, I get up early, I go to the gym, I come into the office, and I actually work on the projects that require my deep attention and focus um, before the rest of the day sort of takes over, before those defaults set in. And I asked him about that. I said, well, you know, you've got this, <laughs> it's, it's almost a target. You know, you've got this three, four hour block on your calendar. Everybody wants to be on your calendar. What do you do? And he says, I just tell people I already have plans. You know, I just say, look, I'm busy during that time. Can we find another time? So, you know, we, we write about that idea and that tactic in the book because it can work really well. And that's an example of how it can work really well. Uh, I have been talking to a few friends who work at uh, different tech companies who have basically agreed as a team that they're going to have certain days when they don't have meetings or certain times of days when they don't have, have meetings and then other days when they do. Uh, and it seems the, the pattern that I'm seeing is that um, it works really well when it's a small team or a sub, you know, a, a part of a team. It probably works less well as an entire company. Um, it probably doesn't make a lot of sense for, you know, even if it's just 50 people, but, you know, especially if it's larger to say, you know, we have no meeting Wednesdays here or whatever. Um, because I think that the more people you try to impose, impose that policy on, the more likely you are to to run up against kind of the the realities or the idiosyncratic, uh, idiosyncratic like features of of what their job is and and why they might actually need to have meetings on that day depending on what they're working on. So I would say um, do it as a as a small team. Um, agree on 
agree as a team on the specific days and times that you want to block. And then probably the most important of all is that you have support and you have buy-in from from your manager, from your decision maker. Because like I mentioned earlier, people who are in these decision-making positions, the choices that they make affect the ways that all of us use our time. And so if we have no meeting Wednesday, but the one time that the boss wants to have a recurring meeting is on Wednesday morning, um, there goes the there goes the the policy. Um, so those are kind of the, the the ingredients that I've seen. But short answer is I think it's a great idea. Longer answer is I think it uh, have to be a few ingredients to make it work. Well, I've got to say I'm I'm definitely intrigued by all this. It may not be specific to just product people and entrepreneurs, but making time is definitely on the short list of pain points for these groups. That's for sure. Yes, and I can't wait to chat more with John all about this pretty soon. Yeah, when. Well, remember, John is going to be joining us at this year's industry uh, in September. Mm. So he's actually kicking the conference off with a talk. And he's also doing a full day design sprint workshop the day before the conference starts. Oh, wow. How how do we get involved in that? Well, you can check it out. It's uh, you could just go to industryconference.com. There's a little uh, link that'll show you the workshops. And there's other workshops, too, from people we've heard on the show, like Bob Mesta and Rich Miranov. But uh, yeah, it should be pretty awesome. That sounds awesome. I might even join that one. <laughs> you should. You totally should. <laughs> well, um, how are you doing with everything anyway? Well, things are busy. <laughs> of course they are. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It's your support that keeps the show going. Rocketship.fm is now part of the Podglomerate Network. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the Podglomerate Network, go to thepodglomerate.com. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. If you go to productcollective.com, you could check out live video interviews, sign up for our newsletter, be a part of our Slack group with over 6,000 product people. Just check it out at productcollective.com. 